This is a podcast from Meow.net. Meow! Connecting people working for cultural democracy in Europe and America, this is a culture of possibility. With Arlene Goldbard and Francois Matarasso. Welcome to episode 24 of A Culture of Possibility, a podcast about community arts, cultural democracy, and many related topics. I'm Francois Matarasso. I'm speaking to you from central France, and we've reversed the roles for once. And so I'm going to hand over and ask my co-host Arlene Goldbard to introduce herself. Thanks, Francois. I am Arlene Goldbart. As you heard, and today I get to be the guest, and we'll see how different that is from just schmoozing with each other as we do every third podcast. But I'm super excited to be here today in Lamy, New Mexico, where it's supposed to snow, talking to you about my new book. And that's why we've swapped roles, because today we're going to talk about Arlene's book, which will be coming out in a couple of months' time, just after Christmas. And uh, it's an interesting experience for me because we, during the lockdown, during the pandemic, I became aware of this when Arlene would send me photographs of some of her paintings. And first it would be one, then a couple of paintings would would come and finally there was a whole series and she they were all portraits and of figures that many of whom were interesting and important to me but they also are all presented as angels with a legend uh, about them as part of the painting so Arlene why don't you begin by telling us the origin of of these paintings and and how they came to you. Thanks, Francois. I will. I think before I do that, I want to say um, the book is called In the Camp of Angels of Freedom, and the subtitle is What Does It Mean to Be Educated? And we'll put some links on the meow.net website, but if you're curious to just have a bit of a look, you can go to my website, arlingoldbard.com, and right there on the homepage, there's a link to to read more about the book. So, um, well, it's a saga, Francois, because, you know, I used to be a a visual artist. That was my primary identification. And from from the earliest childhood, I had a knack for, for capturing a likeness and drawing and painting. And that was just, that was who I was and that was who I was going to be. And, um, I, I kind of stopped off and on, starting in in the 70s and 80s, and then I stopped for a long time by the time the the new century turned around, Um, primarily for reasons that I now consider cuckoo, which were uh, political, left-wing political critique of making paintings. Uh, I, I really succumbed strongly to the idea that, that what I was doing was just sort of, you know, creating objects to decorate the walls of the bourgeoisie or whatever. And, this, you know, if it wasn't a poster, it wasn't valid and blah, blah, blah. And I wanted to write and I had already been doing a lot of public speaking. So 
I, I think maybe somewhere in my mind, I thought it's one or the other, but whatever the reasons were, it just petered out for me and I, and I stopped. And in, uh, I think it was 2018, um, I had a bad case of malaise and, uh, I had been, uh, deeply involved in, in two projects that for years in leadership positions, the, the um, U.S. Department of Arts and Culture, uh, USDAC.us, and the Shalom Center, the shalomcenter.org, one of which is a Jewish peace and justice organization, and the other one something that uh, supports artists and other community members in essentially having cultural democracy come to be real in America. And... Uh, I'd been working very hard. My work was appreciated. It felt effective, but I felt like I wasn't growing or learning anything. And I didn't know what to do about it. I went to see a psychic. And the psychic uh, told me, well, what gives you joy? What gives you pleasure? And one of the things that had happened is that not that long before my husband and I had been on vacation and we got rained out and we did a bunch of little drawings and I really enjoyed that. And this person said, you need to go home and draw without any uh, concrete intention. You're not making a specific body of work or whatever. You're just doing it. And I did. And one of the first things I did was draw a picture of James Baldwin as an angel with what you call a legend, with some text on, on the image saying, what angel? I, uh, I thought he was. And then I did a few more. I have these uh, colored you know, marker type of drawing still in my portfolio. And after a while, I thought, because um, what I was doing before I stopped all those years was making oil paintings on, on panels of people. And I thought, I'd really love to do that, but I'd have to buy an easel, I'd have to get the panels, I'd have to get all the paints and brushes again. I didn't have these things anymore. And then that took me into the space of, um, oh, is it really worth it? It's a lot of money. It's a lot of effort. And then I, it felt like what I was saying was I shouldn't do what, what was calling to me to happen because of some stupid practical consideration. So I got the stuff and Rick, my husband, he, he makes things with wood and he made the panels for me and, you know, a lot of things combined to help me. And the very first thing I did was paint a picture of Rick. And uh, that was a really, really interesting experience because he was sitting, you know, a few feet away from me in this little studio that's that's part of the, what we have on our property. And, um, and he'd never seen any of my paintings, right? He met me long after all of that. He didn't, I don't, I might've said to him, I used to do visual art, but that that was it. And he kept commenting, you know, you're just mixing those colors. You, you know, you're just, it's, you're just going from one thing to another. It seems like you really know what you're doing. And I did. It was all in my body still. None of it was gone, you know. And when he came around the other side and saw the picture, he was just blown away because um, he just didn't know me that way, you know. So that was, and and I'm, that, I like that picture. You can see it on my website and on the visual artwork page. And uh, it opened a door for me. 
And so I began a year or two of painting from life, and I just got everybody around here I knew who would be willing to sit for me to sit for me. It's a kind of a, it, it can be a tedious process because you're just sitting there, you know, but it's really an intimate, interesting process too, because you're having a dialogue that never ends. And uh, then, then came the pandemic. And I could no longer be in a little room with people sitting three feet away from me, breathing the same air and staring into each other's eyes. So then I painted a ton of self-portraits, um, and you know, like that. And in the whole scope of me as a visual artist, I'd never painted from anything but life for maybe 40, 50 years. You know, I did some paintings from old photographs a zillion years ago. And, and it came to me to, to do James Baldwin again to make a painting like the drawing that I had done. And I did. And that was the first angel portrait. And then I got the idea of doing all of these portraits of all of these people whose, whose work had been a, a huge source of inspiration, stimulus, rethinking, um, renewed understanding, something for me, you know. I made my list and I winnowed my list down and and I went on from, from Baldwin to do 10 more. And once I had done them, I thought, should I have to write about these? Because it's not like everything I want to say about these people and my experience of them can be encompassed by a few words on the on the front of the panel. And so I wrote the essays. And then once I wrote the essays, I realized what the book was about and um, I had to write the whole second part of it, which we'll talk about more more later. So, you know, I keep, what I keep saying about it is it's the biggest silver lining in my life, the pandemic, you know. We didn't suffer, for which I'm grateful. We haven't been ill. People we know have suffered greatly and people we don't know even more so. So I don't mean to say it was a silver lining for the world. But for me, it was a big reminder that when you're forced off of the path that you're familiar with and comfortable with, sometimes amazing things can happen. Thank you for that. I, it, it is amazing that it it's become a book and because it's... It's a very original thing. Both the paintings themselves are very original, presenting these intellectual, moral, political, ethical heroes of yours as angels. And we'll talk a bit more about what that means to you maybe towards the end of the conversation. But let's talk a little bit about, um, I mean, you've already touched on how painting has been an important part of your life. And I know that it was very important to you when you were growing up and when you were young. And because the what we should say is that what you discovered the book was about was your ideas about education, what it means to be educated, who controls education, how we as human beings, if we're lucky, find our own path and our own selves through education, both formal and informal. Um, I think that was a jet fighter flying over, so that might be, that might turn up on the podcast. If it is, I'm sorry about it. Um, 
but there's a lot of them around at the moment. Um, yeah, so let's just tell us a little bit about your um, your early childhood and your relationship with education as you were growing up and, and the beginnings of that and how what part painting played for you in that. Well, the other thing, the book is about all the things you said, and the other thing it's about is the path that I've made for myself as a person without educational credentials, someone who's been self-educated. Um, so, you know, my, my family story is an immigrant story. My, um, my father emigrated to this country as a young man. My mother um, came in my grandmother's tummy when she came over. Um, there was... Uh, my my maternal grandparents were escaping um, the Tsar's uh, army in Russia, which was a death sentence for Jews. My father was escaping the tremendous poverty of his Jewish family in Whitechapel in, in London, where he had been apprenticed to a tailor at 13, and that was a life that was, that was ahead of him. Um, and they, you know, they moved to New York, they all lived together, there was a big extended family. They didn't have two nickels to rub together, as the saying goes. Um, and through a, some happenstance, they they moved to California about a year or two after I was born, um, and and so set up the the situation, the mise en scène that I was going to grow up in, which was basically to be alienated in every possible way from the surroundings in which I found myself. Because we were in this little GI Bill house, which is like this uh, ticky-tacky housing, you know, built quickly and cheaply after World War II to handle all this big influx of families from these um, service people who had mustered out of the war. And, you know, row after row of new houses with tiny saplings, you know, on the on the lawn. That's where I grew up with um, first... My maternal grandparents, um, my father and mother, and uh, my uh, mother's brother and his wife and their oldest child in one house, and then one more child came to each. Some of us moved next door. So it's a really um, emotionally boundaryless situation, you know, that was very complicated by the fact that the men were just like degenerate gamblers and no one had any education and, you know, they were, they didn't know the rules of how to live in, in, in America. And, uh, they were dislocated by moving to California from the milieu in which they would be more comfortable and all of that. So, you know, I just grew up this little alien baby in this California suburban place and you know i only put a few stories in the book but if, if were i to regale you you would immediately fall asleep because it would be one after the other of you know you have to be sent to the library when they do the christmas thing and you have to you know there just weren't very many people like us and for whatever reason um i wasn't too thrilled to be part of the family that that I came up in, and and I think a lot of the formation of my character ever since has been in reaction to that, to try to be a virtuous person and, you know, like give correct change and whatever on any metaphysical level you want to say it, as as compared to the people that I grew up among who are always robbing Peter to pay Paul gambling, you know, just not following the rules of, of society. So the thing, I mean, there were two things that I had that enabled me to survive. And one was a brain, 
which was a big stroke of luck for me because if I hadn't had it, I, I think I, I would still be there. Um, and the other one was a knack for making these images from the earliest age. So all the teachers, everybody, Arlene can draw, Arlene can paint, Arlene can whatever. And so it was very easy early on for me to say, well, what is an artist? And how can I follow the path to become one of these super quirk, um, self-directed makers of beauty and meaning? But maybe you want to know something different about that. I don't, ask me if you do. No, what I, let's, let's um, go from there. I mean, the, the, the part of the originality of the book is there are these uh, 11 beautiful portraits of people who've been so important to you. And in, with each of them, there's an essay that mixes your personal experience with some of the, the reflection and ideas that, that you gain from uh, your encounters with, with your angels, as it were. Um, and the, then the second part of the book, you have some um, theoretical and, and uh, practical uh, discourse about um, education, which we'll come on to. But let's, let's begin by hearing about one of your angels. And I'd like to talk about Nina Simone, because she's, she's it seems to me, you know, this is the, you, you encountered her when you were um, at school. And uh, from reading your essay, she was a big part of you learning or, or going through that, that experience that so many young people have of trying to work out who you are, how you fit in, and if you want to fit in, and what the cost of fitting in is, and what the cost of not fitting in is, and so on. So will you tell us a bit about Nina Simone? Well, Nina Simone's career was fortuitously timed for my cultural and, and, and personal awakening. Um, I, I went to high school between 1960 and 64. And early on, I think probably in the first year, I met this person who became my best friend and we were, you know, inseparable for those years. And she was alienated too, but in a completely different way. Her family had moved from the agricultural San Joaquin Valley, the Central Valley of California, they'd been come there as Okies and Arkies from Oklahoma and Arkansas during the Great Depression. And this was an upward mobility move to come to the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, so she was displaced too. And I think, you know, we found our, our fellowship, our kinship in, in uh, our displacement, even though the specific characteristics of it in each case could not have been more different. And, um, it just so happened that her her dad liked jazz and big band stuff, and they went to concerts. I mean, this is a whole world that was completely invisible to me. And I was introduced to all of this, including Ina Simone. So the, I mean, there, there are lots of different songs that, um, you, you know, how, how music is a, is a, 
pebble dropped into the pond of memory and everything ripples out. And I remember the first Stevie Wonder song, Fingertips Part Two, where he played the harmonica. That was about the same time that I discovered Nina Simone. The, what these figures embodied for me was um, a sense of presence. I mean, presence is kind of a trivial word, but what I mean is full, like Nina Simone, full embodied presence. When people talk about her, they say regal, you know, they say queenly, they say all of those words, because the way she carried herself and the way she presented herself and the way she wouldn't take any shit from the audience in concert and the music that she chose to sing you know, because it could be a blues standard, but it could be Kurt Vile, you know, it could, it could be all kinds of things. Um, I think, well, the word I would use right now is permission. I think that what I began to see through artists in, in that formative time in my life when I was a young teenager were people who were self-authorizing, people who had granted themselves permission to occupy fully the persona that they understood was their true essence and their true selves. And then it was like, well, shit, this is what I want to do. You know, not this, I, I don't want to settle for anything less than that. And in my very limited knowledge of the world, there was only one path to that, and that was the path of the artist. I mean, now I see it. Could, I, maybe I could have decided to be a scientist or something, you know, if that was how I was torqued. But that vision of the artist as um, fully present, fully occupying the space, fully aware of one's own worth and fully aware of an engagement with those who partake of whatever your art might, might be. That became my avatar. You write, she knew her worth. I wanted to know mine and I wanted it to be more than the paltry sum I'd been assigned, which is very telling and i i think you've been talking about it here you you also write beautifully about it in the book this sense of of presence that so much i mean you write about seeing nina simone sitting at the piano in in complete command not just of herself but of uh the whole situation the concert hall the people there um, and two things about that. One, it, it reminded me of um, uh, uh, a situation I, uh, a friend once told me about. Of um, I'd I'd organised um, a visit by some Colombian uh, dance company that I are very old friends, and they were working in um, in the north of England for a week. And they were doing some workshops and they, some, some of the, the members of the company were quite young. The youngest was about 15 at the time. And she was, uh, she was supposed to be leading a workshop. She was just, uh, quite a small, uh, person still at that age. And these kids who were two or three years older than her had come in. Uh, swaggering about, not, you know, not wanting to take it seriously. I, I was, it was even suggested some of them might have been drunk, even though it was the morning. Um, and 
the my friend who'd observed the workshop said it was extraordinary because she just saw this uh, young woman from Colombia take control of that group of of young British students and get them to do a dance workshop. And she said, my friend said to me, it's because the Colombian dancer knew who she was and the people she was working with didn't know who they were. And they they um, accepted her authority, even though she was younger, foreign, she didn't speak English, but, you know, they could sense. And I think some of what I get from your description of Nina Simone is that that knowledge that is that you call embodied and is very often undervalued in our educational system. We learn so much from seeing, from being, from from the physical presence of other people and so on and situations. And yet, you know, it's as if all learning comes out of books and, and gets articulated in exam papers. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, not not to digress, but this is something you and I have talked about when we talked about the ethics of community-based arts practice, for example, the importance of the artist knowing oneself, really interrogating um, mm. oneself. So be- because in both of our experience, a person with that integrated presence and self-knowledge commands... Um, Commands attention, I guess, but that's not really what I want to say. Invites uh, engagement, in, invites connection, mm. invites relationship in a way that, pe- that people find irresistible and they want to be in it. And if you don't know who you are and you're just mouthing some stuff that people told you you're supposed to do in this situation, you lose them all the time, right? Will you read us a, a little bit from this passage? Because I think listeners would enjoy hearing at first hand what, yeah. what's, some of what's in the book. I'd be glad to. Uh, so Carla is, is the name in the book of, of this friend who came from the Central Valley. Carla teased me about my lunches. Chopped liver sandwiches were renamed green liver, and I coveted hers, which included tiny paper boxes of raisins and neatly wrapped rafts of carrot sticks. She told me I said orange in the wrong way. I told her there was no R in wash. We liked Joan Baez and Bob Dylan, even though Carla's father imitated Dylan's nasal whine and told us to change the record. We read about nonviolence and schemed with a very few other outsiders to engage our fellow students in changing school rules. We tried to keep our faces blank when the PE teacher took us aside to say that wanting to be different was understandable, but wearing black tights to school was taking it too far. We refused to participate in duck and cover bomb drills and paid for our audacity with time in the offices of our counselors who were kind and knew when to pull out the tissues. Carla's father sold insurance. He had a salesman's jokey demeanor and a temper that reddened his face. Her parents had grown up on farms just a generation away from their Dust Bowl forebears. They worked hard to achieve upward mobility and had been rewarded with their roomy suburban home. Sunset Magazine was Carla's mother's Bible. She and her husband listened to big band jazz and went to sports car races at Laguna Seca near Monterey. When Carla and I went to her house after school, we ate foods that were completely strange to me, marinated artichoke hearts fished out of little jars and piled on saltine crackers. And if our father wasn't home yet, 
we listened to his records. That's where I met Nina Simone. Her first recording was released in 1959, the year before I started high school. I remember Willow Weep For Me, Wild Is The Wind, Trouble In Mine, Pirate Jenny, and in our last year of school, Simone's own competition, the searing civil rights song, Mississippi Goddamn. Simone was a queen, armored in elegance. In Simone, I saw what I'd been stumbling toward, the first woman who seemed to hold a key to the life I longed to live. Now I see that same key belonged to every one of my female angels, self-determination undiluted by overmuch regard for others' opinions. Beautiful, thank you. Let's look at uh, another of your angels, one that certainly also like Nina Simone impressed me and had a, a big uh, impact on, on my thinking. Um, Paulo Freire, the Brazilian educator and theorist, philosopher, I guess. How did you encounter him? It was in the, um, the 70s, in the uh, early mid-70s. I, I encountered him from this boyfriend I had. He was into uh, creating a conservation Corps for California and starting a school and stuff like that. And everybody who was at all involved in education at that time had been reading Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which was the first book of fairies that really hit the states and catalyzed just a ton of, uh, of response. And, you know, the formative idea of internalization of the oppressor, that's so key to his thinking the notion that when you hear messages that devalue your own being, that disempower you insistently enough, repeatedly enough, coming enough from the centers of power, you start to take them in and believe them to be your own thoughts and, and your own feelings. And in fact, the people who benefit from you being so pliant and powerless um, have that in mind and have, are, are in many ways very successful at it. So when I heard these ideas for the first time, it just blew my mind, you know. I mean, literally, I, I see an image of the top of my head blowing off because it summed up so perfectly uh, the truth that I had never been able to fully articulate and I had never heard anyone else fully articulate either. So once I heard him, then it was... Um, very, very, very all the way, you know, it just completely in, infused the work I was doing. And in the book, in the chapter on him, it starts with a journey that I made with my then husband to work with a group far up in Northern California and using, um, uh, coming to use as a generative theme, another fairy's terms for our discussion, uh, a kind of a fable about the situation that they found themselves in that helped them to understand it. But in the book, what I tell about first is reading uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, one sentence, one painstaking sentence at a time, and then discussing that sentence uh, to try to get the meaning out of it and going on to the next one. But I'm awfully glad I did because I may never have read the book all the way through if I just had to be on my own devices sitting in a chair reading it. It's really dense. After that, he wrote a lot more books and people edited things out of his writing. And there's dialogues with um, Amilcar Cabral and uh, 
the guy from Highlander Center, Miles uh, Horton, and so forth, that are much more accessible. But um, Ferry changed my life, and unlike some of the other people whose whose ideas and writing had an impact on me at a certain point in my life, that one never went away. It's just as fresh and useful today as ever. Yeah, I feel the same. I mean, he he um, Frere. That first book was published, I think, in 1971. And um, I'm not sure at which point, but round about then, maybe in the a little earlier, he'd had to, to leave Brazil and was living in Portugal because of the, the uh, military dictatorship in Brazil. And the appearance of his work in English and him coming to Europe, I think, contributed to make that book really important for that first generation of community artists who found a, a really rich source of ideas that, that I think framed some of, of the way in which we saw we could work with people. Um, it is, it's interesting. It's one of the, it's a surprising book. It's not very long. Um, and like you, I think I probably have never uh, read my way through from the beginning to the end because it is dense although it's a it it it's not pretentious or difficult or anything like that that would be the opposite of everything he stands for but it's dense because the ideas that he's dealing with are important and and they need effort to understand because they often challenge some of the the basic assumptions that that we have yeah, and it's so and, cool and, and amazing. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. It's so cool and, and amazing that um, the things that he writes about seem so self-evidently true. You don't have to be argued into believing them. But yet, as a thinker, he was completely original. I don't even know how you can get those two things together. Right? How can you how can you be saying something in such a way that everyone says, "Aha! Yes, of course, I know this already," and yet you're the one, the first one who said it. Yeah, he's an amazing man. And now, at that point, you had already done quite a lot of of things and were working in the arts and consultancy and and development and so on. Um, there's a there's a passage. I think it's important in, in your book, not so much, uh, not from the the discussion of Paolo Freire, but maybe um, where uh, it's maybe a lived encounter that you had with some of the realities that, that he's talking about um, in a museum in, uh, in California. Would you like to read that for us, please? I would be happy to read that. I have to find it, of course. I thought it was right in front of me. Here it is. This is a, a one of the of several introductory bits to the second part of the book, which aren't about the eleven individuals per se or my relationships with their work, but rather take up the question of what it means to be educated and what that has meant to me as, as an autodidact. Um, so this this passage is entitled The Lessons of the Porcelain Room. 
The porcelain room was a forest of sparkling vitrines, each displaying ceramic objects organized by European historical period. Ancient Roman here, Majolica there, early porcelain objects elsewhere. They filled a large airy space that opened onto the de Young Museum's garden in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. I liked visiting museums, even though entering one usually prompted me to hold my breath and walk on tiptoe. This was the mid-70s, so I hadn't yet read Pierre Bourdieu's research concerning what ordinary French people felt museums were most like, but I knew the answer from my own body's response. Churches, of course, aspirational spaces demanding best behavior. On that day, though, I hadn't gone there to admire the porcelain, but to meet with the trustees of the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco. I was nervous as I threaded my way past the glass cases, searching for the table and chairs set out for our meeting. The surroundings spoke of preciousness and fragility, and I felt out of place. I was an organizer for a group called the San Francisco Art Workers Coalition. We were performers, visual artists, writers, and more, with very different practices, muralists, uh, circus clowns, comedia actors, musicians, poets, media makers. What we had in common were certain democratic liberatory values. Our work gave us an insider's view of what are conventionally called the arts a term I dislike for its clumsy grouping of big-ticket red-carpet institutions with tiny, beleaguered insurgent groups. While from the outside, the world of theaters, galleries, and so on may look like a chummy and well-funded enclave of privilege, sweetness, and light, from the inside, the economics, and thus the power relations, are nearly futile with fat cat organizations hoovering up most of the resources and everyone else scrambling for the leftovers. We believe this should change. Since the fine arts museums were publicly owned and funded in part with taxpayers' dollars, we thought they should be accountable to all communities in the city they were chartered to serve. That translated into many ideas, such as making room on their self-perpetuating governing boards for artists and other community members more committed to equity and far less involved with the city's social and economic elites, and showing the work of women and artists of color, including living artists. To back up our claims, we'd done a great deal of research, plotting the trustees' interlocking financial and social interests on a map generating a thick tangle of red lines that looked like a plan for a new freeway between the ritzy Pacific Heights neighborhood and the financial district. In the lead up to the bicentennial of the American Revolution in 1976, the DeYoung Museum was planning a celebratory exhibition of John D. Rockefeller III's collection of American art, later bequeathed to the museum to form the nucleus of its American wing. We found the objection and timing objectionable in multiple ways. The collection comprised almost entirely art by white men. I recall there was one painting by a woman and none by a person of color, but maybe it was the other way around. This seemed especially egregious as it was the only exhibit any local museum planned for the occasion and it telegraphed the message that this country was made by white men, that their perceptions, subjects, and depictions told the definitive story for us all. We were also aware of the means whereby the market system adds value to art objects. When JDR3 began to acquire this work, American painting was not much in demand. 
Today, the museum highlights recognizable American wing names and images on its website, Copley, Homer, Church. But when most of the collection was purchased, pieces were generally obscure and often obtained for a fraction of the value that quickly accrued because they were first exhibited at and then acquired by a major museum. What was being billed solely as an act of generosity was also a shrewd financial stratagem. I was a spokesperson for our group assigned that day to represent our demands for accountability for taxpayers' funding, inclusive and equitable exhibition policies, and meaningful representation for all San Franciscans in the museum's governance. The meeting unfolded pretty much as expected. We spoke, the trustees offered a few questions and comments, but nothing was explicitly agreed or rejected. We felt they were waiting for us to be gone to get on with their real business. Soon we were making our way past the vitrines toward the exit. Before we left the building, a curator took me aside. Genial, graying, he peered at me over his gold-rimmed glasses, leaning in to speak in a softly confiding voice. The trustees would be fine with adding someone like you, he whispered, someone who understands. Didn't you go to one of the seven sisters? I'd never heard that name before. I had to visit the library to learn that it referred to seven historic Northeastern women's colleges, Mount Holyoke, Smith, Wellesley, Bryn Mawr, Barnard, Vassar, and Radcliffe. Wow, what an amazing offer. <laughs> but you didn't take it up. I uh, I didn't take it up, and it was never repeated. So I'm guessing, <laughs> I'm guessing, and maybe I think it could have been a test, right, to see how yeah. easily bought off I might be. Yeah, maybe you just didn't recognize the phrase "the Seven Sisters," so you blew it. Then you, know, you just <laughs> knew you you weren't there. <laughs> Going back to the to the angels, I mean, the what I what I love about them, the I mean, some of them were are people that have been really important to me. Others were completely unknown to me. So uh, I, I loved learning about people like Paul Goodman, Alice Neal, John Trudell, and Abraham Joshua Heschel. Um, but before we, we, we move on from the angels themselves and talk about um, some of the, the broader ideas, let's talk about one last one. Um, Isaiah Berlin, um, who uh, was important to you a bit later in your development. Tell us about what he came to mean to you and what he taught you. He freed me from the grip of ideology for which I will be forever grateful. Um, because, and in a way, I mean, his his story was pretty different than mine, but it had some similarities in that as a young person, he was dislocated from Russia where, his, you know, he was the son of a timber baron and, and taken to England um, where he in, insisted on referring to himself as a Latvian Jew all, uh, all his long career as, as Oxford rather than uh, an Oxford Don. Um, so, you know, I think there's a little bit there of um, don't don't irascinate me and, um, you know, I am the totality of my experience. But it wasn't his personal story that got me. It was his, um, it, it was the things he said about uh, the grotesqueness, and he uses that word, of ideology as applied to the human project. He makes the point that... Um, 
about how many different, not only, you know, philosophical movements, historical commentators, but also actual historical events like the Russian Revolution were um, framed uh, with, with the notion that human beings could be made to conform to some idea of how they should be. And you just had to cut off the heads of all the ones that stuck out around the borders of that idea and everything would be fine. Um, I never really had thought of it that way before. I never really thought that what I understood experientially, you know, in first person world about the complexity of, of human nature and, and the reality of human choice and the way that people couldn't be tamed and, and made to follow some notion of who they should be. I never, I never really took that to the pages of the historical commentary or philosophical commentary I read. It just, the two things seemed to stand apart. And the way he, um, you know, the way, the way he said, the way, the way he enabled me to no longer be an ideologue was a real rescue of my political life because up to that point I had felt bound by the milieu in which I moved to approve of everything that the left said and did, no matter which left it was, you know, Cuba or whatever. Um, and to criticize everything that emanated from any other point on the political spectrum. I opened that chapter with an anecdote about a famous speech of Susan Sontag's in which she denounces communism as, as fascism of the human face um, and was roundly trounced by the left for saying that, although she managed to rehabilitate herself afterwards. But it really, um, that was brave of her. And it really uh, struck me that his ideas could equip me with that same kind of freedom and maybe courage as well to to look at everything with the same fullness of heart and mind and not be persuaded by ideology. I didn't encounter uh, Isaiah Berlin till I was much older, but for me, the 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 person who who helped me clarify that when I was a teenager, really, was um, Albert Camus and the encounter with his 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 integrity and his his um, placing of human beings above everything at at often at, at great cost. I mean, he he was a a French Algerian. Um, a resistance member during the the Second World War in France, but then, you know, on in a very divided environment, and we talk about today's politics being in divided, but you know, post-war politics in Europe were were even more sharply polarized, and uh, Albert Camus and others um, uh, in my own personal pantheon i guess i think they're 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 people who i i respect because and admire because they they saw clearly and honestly and 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 were able to say if i can't believe that i can't believe it i can't pretend i can believe it you know um and often paid um a a, a high price for that there have been others. I think. I mean, more recently, George Orwell has has been somebody I've I've read a lot. And there are those those figures who 
who hold on to a um, a, a certain truth um, are are really important, and it's 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 not a, always a an easy road to to travel. Mm-hmm. Do you have a an, an extract from from your uh, essay on Berlin to share? I do. I want to say before I share it, Francois, that um, what you just did with Camus is what I'm inviting readers to do in part is to discover their own angels, to discover the catalytic thinkers or or, uh, makers or or whatever it is in their own life. Maybe we'll talk more about that. We will. We'll come back to that. Okay. I have a vivid memory of hanging out with friends on playground swings in the interstices of a theater conference. One was a veteran of the civil rights movement, the other a professor at a Midwestern university. Both men spoke of politics with confidence and certainty. They knew who was and wasn't on the right side of history. During the previous conference session, someone had talked about the persecution of sexual minorities in Cuba. Both men condemned that as airing family laundry in public. They insisted that nothing critical could be said about the Soviet Union or other communist countries because criticizing them would, in effect, be supporting the U.S. government, which was always looking for an excuse to invade, conquer, discredit. When I pointed out some of the crimes of these regimes, the censorship of art in many countries, the imprisonment of dissidents in China and the Soviet Union, the forcible relocations and mass killings in Cambodia, They either countered that the United States had been guilty of comparable sins or that these regimes had been driven to extreme measures precisely to fight American imperialism. Fewer people take this position today, but I often see the same phenomenon played out with different labels. Harmful statements and actions by women are dismissed as provoked and justified by toxic masculinity, by people of color as provoked and legitimated by toxic whiteness. It's not that human actions are never deformed by the distortions of a dominant force. Those provocations are real. It's just that even under such conditions, human beings have agency and choice in how to respond. No doubt politics are easier if you know who the great Satan is, but sacrificing the ability to see the world in all its contradictions and complexity seems a high price to pay for ease. In the 80s, though, this consensus on the left that all must be forgiven or at least overlooked because all is overdetermined by American imperialism, I found hard to resolve. Maybe my friends were right. The United States' misdeeds were many and massive. Who were we to point fingers at its opponents? But I could no more immunize oppressive governments from criticism with this rationale than I can join Sontag in singing the praises of Reader's Digest. She later backpedaled on that one. Neither did I wish to be an apologist for regimes that had done so much harm to their own people. I was shortly rescued from this dilemma by Isaiah Berlin. Thanks, Aline. Let's, before, as we kind of come towards the the close of this, let's say a little, I'd like to hear a little bit about your broader ideas about education and self-education and so on, and particularly about what you call credentialism. And why it's such a dangerous and and um, uh, problematic uh, idea in in education today? 
Well, I should say, Francois, that in the book, I'm focusing primarily, almost exclusively, on U.S. examples, and it is a different situation. I mean, the the cost of higher education, if you compare Oxford to Harvard, I think the the tuition and fees at Oxford are a quarter of of what they are at Harvard now. So, the 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 transformation of education from a social good to a profit center is pretty complete in the United States right now, and. Credentialism there then means that it's necessary to um, uh, pursue a, a privilege based in in spending power um, in order to find a, a place in society that in which you can fulfill whatever you think your your destiny is. But I have to say that my um, my the 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 root of this is heartful, not so much conceptual just pisses me off and breaks my heart how disrespectfully working class people, people who lack formal credentials are treated in this country and how often that's um, unconsciously uh, performed, you know, by people uh, of all social sectors and in, in, in all social positions. So, I know from my very own experience that it's possible to achieve a good education by reading, thinking, talking, and experiencing. I consider myself a well-educated person, even though I just barely graduated from high school. Um, And I meet people all the time who've pursued their own path to knowledge and wisdom. It's been idiosyncratic like mine was. It's been self-directed like mine was, and very often it's been successful like like mine was. You know, I I have, I own the knowledge that that I have, and I own the wisdom that I have, such as it is. It's been earned, and that seems to me to be true for all of those people I'm talking about. But the um, the way that people are thinking about this in the United States, not just now, but for the last few decades and. God knows for the foreseeable future. It's just completely socially acceptable to dismiss people who lack college education. The entire discourse about American elections right now that we just heard after the midterms and we'll hear again in the run-up to the presidential election. Um, One of the articles that I quote, the headline is, there are not enough college-educated voters. There's this magical thinking that if people go to college and are credentialed, they'll naturally agree with a sort of liberal or progressive perspective and vote for the Democratic Party. And I hear people in casual conversation all the time say that the problem is that Trump voters or people who vote for candidates like him don't have enough formal education. Um, you know, none of these things are true. I mean, there's as many PhDs uh, on the right as there are on the left. And I, I give a lot of, of information in the book um, to debunk these, these myths. But the main thing I want to see is respect for earned knowledge, for lived wisdom that's commensurate and equal with respect for credentialed knowledge. It was interesting for me because I know we both read Michael J. Sandel's book, The Tyranny of Merit, which is a a very powerful critique of that whole system. And um, I I think he has some really important challenges to make to the idea that somehow merit is is deserving of its advantages, whereas in reality life is much more complex than that. Let's um, 
let's finish by going back to to the the central idea, your camp of angels, and uh, what that means to you. Tell us a, a bit about that. And as a, I said to you um, in preparing for this, I think the one of the strengths of the book is that it's it's really an invitation to the reader to reflect, to engage, to to um, find connections in their own life, as as I think we've been doing in this conversation. So maybe let's just finish by asking you a bit of what you hope to offer readers and invite them to 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 engage with. Well, let me let me say to start that you and I had a, a little chat about angels quite a few months ago because they give you the creeps a little bit like, and they do a lot of people, right? <laughs> what they conjure is, you know, like a Valentine's Day card with little wingies and little hearts and things like that. <laughs> that in Hebrew, the word for angels is malachim, which means messengers. And the idea is that, that we live in a series of concentric worlds and and these spirits are the beings that translate information or knowledge from one world to the other. And that's why I chose that frame for for the people that I featured in my book, because that's what they've been for me, translating um, my lived experience into a greater understanding or a different, or, or a different framework. And that's what I hope. I mean, I, there's a few different things I hope the book will do for people. First, I hope that if, if angels give them the creeps, they'll just be able to substitute guides or teachers or something like that. And go. I, I promise there's no religious dogma in the book. But, uh, <laughs> but, but I, I hope two things happen. I hope that people are inspired by the book to consider the formation of their own character and values and life path. And, and maybe to, to discover that part of that happened for them in informal higher education. I had a professor who totally changed my life. But to look deeper and also see the other figures who may be there for them, who um, who were catalytic, who who broke a pattern of thinking that was was clogging their their mental processes and enabled them to travel a, a, a different road. I really invite people to do that. I've enjoyed doing it so much myself, and I just can't imagine that it wouldn't be great for for anybody. But the other thing that I want is for people to start advocating in their own behavior, their own relationships, and their own public statements and actions for policies that treat lived knowledge as on a par with credentialed expertise and don't devalue it. And in the book, I talk about ways that that would change educational institutions, ways that that would change what it means to be a faculty member, ways that it would change the experience for students in those institutions, as well as for people who are completely outside of and and don't really relate to higher educational institutions, how it would change their life experience. Um, You know, simple things like somebody waits on you in a restaurant and you treat them with disrespect or without even thinking about it, you imagine that the scope of their uh, engagement with you would be like, how do you want that? You know, rare or, or well done. To just be able to imagine everyone you meet as equal to yourself in possibility as well as in accomplishment and see where that is. And, you know, among the many examples that I cite 
is uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who worked as a bartender after she had received a degree in international relations with honors. And I guarantee she got insulted quite a bit in that role, as I did when I worked at a coffee bar. Um, I have a couple of dialogues among the angels in the book. They're just short passages, three or four pages maybe, in which they discuss uh, after part one and, and, and after the second part of the book. And after the second part of the book, some of them asked me, like, why did you focus on this thing? Because we're talking about all the massive, wicked problems of society. And why does this credentialism thing hang you up so much? And, you know, what I said to them and what they then said back to me about their own work is that the the structures of domination are holographic. You know, it's like a tapestry. It doesn't matter which thread you pull, it leads to the knowledge of all the other forces that are working in the same way in, in other spheres. So this one, I mean, you know, if, if I were a psychologist, I'd say this one bothers me so much because of my class origins and the humble um, beginnings of my forebears and... Uh, how I see that while I haven't much been personally harmed or affected by it in any way, that I wasn't able to uh, bring people along into those spheres who hadn't been able to impersonate or, you know, enact intellectualism as successfully as I did, or, or you know, in other ways show people that they were allowed into the citadel. It hurts me so much, and I wanted to hurt you too, you know, so that you do something about it. Thank you, Arlene. I, I'll just, a last thought. I mean, for me, one of the reasons that I, I enjoyed and value your book so much is because it's, it, it's in that consistent um, line, which has, I think, underpinned how I've thought and worked over the last 40 years or more now, which is, Essentially, that in a democracy, in in a world of diversity, we can't leave the the production of culture or the production of knowledge in the hands of institutions that are run by only some people. There have to be. It's always seemed to me to be essential that art can be produced anywhere and knowledge can be produced anywhere. It can be produced outside the academy just as effectively as it can be produced inside the academy. And I, I often say to, to, when I'm working with, with younger students and, and artists, you know, in the history of humanity, the vast majority of philosophers and writers and artists and scientists never set foot inside a university because a university is a very modern uh, construction. So we should, we should celebrate those who, who find their own paths towards knowledge and sharing that. So yeah. thank you very much, Arlene. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Francois. I've enjoyed it too. And the book will be published in January? January 24th is the official publication day. And uh, if you want to know more about it, go to my website, arlingoldbar.com, and right there on the homepage you'll see a link. It is available for pre-order now. And we'll put the, the links on the meow.com website and, 
and everything. And I, I hope uh, people will flock and make you a best-selling author. <laughs> <laughs> From your mouth to God's ear, may it be so. <laughs> Thanks, Aline. Thank you. Now that you've heard the podcast, you can go to the website to find out more details, including references and links. The website's at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.